Book One, Part Two of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book One. A.D. 14 and 15. Part 2. The throng applauded from various motives, some pointing with indignation to the marks of the lash, others to their gray locks, and most of them to their threadbare garments and naked limbs. At last, in their fury, they went so far as to propose to combine the three legions into one. Driven from their purpose by the jealousy with which everyone sought the chief honor for his own legion, they turned to other thoughts, and set up in one spot the three eagles, with the ensigns of the cohorts. At the same time they piled up turf and raised a mound, that they might have a more conspicuous meeting-place. Amid the bustle, Blysus came up. He upbraided them, and held back man after man with the exclamation, Better imbrew your hands in my blood. It would be less guilt to slay your commander than it is to be in revolt from the emperor. Either living... I will uphold the loyalty of the legions, or, pierced to the heart, I will hasten on your repentance. Nonetheless, however, was the mound piled up, and it was quite breast-high when, at last overcome by his persistency, they gave up their purpose. Blysus, with the consummate tact of an orator, said, It is not through mutiny and tumult that the desires of the army ought to be communicated to Caesar nor did our soldiers of old ever ask so novel a boon of ancient commanders, nor have you yourselves asked it of the divine Augustus. It is far from opportune that the emperor's cares, now in their first beginning, should be aggravated, if, however, you are bent upon attempting in peace what even after your victory in the civil wars you did not demand. Why, contrary to the habit of obedience, contrary to the laws of discipline, do you meditate violence? Decide on sending envoys, and give them instructions in your presence. It was carried by acclamation that the son of Blysus, one of the tribunes, should undertake the mission, and demand for the soldiers release from service after sixteen years. He was to have the rest of their message, when the first part had been successful. After the young man's departure there was comparative quiet, but there was an arrogant tone among the soldiers, to whom the fact that their commander's son was pleading their common cause clearly showed that they had wrested by compulsion what they had failed to obtain by good behavior. Meanwhile, the companies which, previous to the mutiny, had been sent to Nauportus to make roads and bridges and for other purposes, when they heard of the tumult in the camp, tore up the standards, and having plundered the neighboring villages and Nauportus itself, which was like a town, assailed the centurions who restrained them with jeers and insults, and last of all with blows. Their chief rage was against Alfidianus Rufus, the camp prefect, whom they dragged from a wagon, loaded with baggage, and drove on at the head of the column. asking him in ridicule whether he liked to bear such huge burdens in such long marches. Rufus, who had been long been a common soldier, 
then a centurion, and subsequently camp prefect, tried to revive the old severe discipline, inured as he was to work and toil, and all the sterner because he had endured. On the arrival of these troops the mutiny broke out afresh, and straggling from the camp they plundered the neighborhood. Blysus ordered a few who had conspicuously loaded themselves with spoil to be scourged and imprisoned as a terror to the rest, for, even as it then was, the commander was still obeyed by the centurions, and by all the best men among the soldiers. As the men were dragged off, they struggled violently, clasped the knees of the bystanders, called to their comrades by name, or to the company, cohort, or legion to whom they were respectively belonged, exclaiming that they were all threatened with the same fate. At the same time they heaped abuse on the commander, they appealed to heaven and to the gods, and left nothing undone by which they might excite resentment and pity, alarm and rage. They all rushed to the spot, broke open the guardhouse, unbound the prisoners, and were in a moment fraternizing with deserters and men convicted on capital charges. Thence arose a more furious outbreak, with more leaders of the mutiny. Vubulenus, a common soldier, was hoisted in front of the general's tribunal on the shoulders of the bystanders, and addressed the excited throng who eagerly awaited his intentions. You have indeed, he said, restored light and air to these innocent and most unhappy men. But who restores to my brother his life, or my brother to myself? Sent to you by the German army in our common cause, he was last night butchered by the gladiators, whom the general keeps in arms for the destruction of his soldiers. Answer, Blysus, where have you flung aside the corpse? Even an enemy grudges not burial. When, with embraces and tears, I have sated my grief, order me also to be slain, provided that only when we have been destroyed, for no crime, but only because we have consulted the good of the legions, we may be buried by those men around me. He inflamed their excitement by weeping and smiting his breast and face with his hands. Then, hurling aside those who bore him on their shoulders, and impetuously flinging himself at the feet of one man after another, he roused such dismay and indignation that some of the soldiers put fetters on the gladiators, who were among the number of Blysus's slaves. Others did the like to the rest of his household, while a third party hurried out to look for the corpse. And had it not quickly been known that no corpse was found, that the slaves, when tortures were applied, denied the murder, and that the man never had a brother, they would have been on the point of destroying the general. As it was, they thrust out the tribunes and the camp prefect. They plundered the baggage of the fugitives, and they killed a centurion, Lucilius, to whom, with soldiers' humor, they have given the name, Bring Another, because when he had broken one vine-stick on a man's back, he would call in a loud voice for another, and another. The rest sheltered themselves in concealment, and only one was detained, Clemens Julius, whom the soldiers considered a fit person to carry messages, from his ready wit. Two legions, the eighth and the fifteenth, were actually drawing swords against each other, the former demanding the death of a centurion, whom they nicknamed Serpicius, when the men of the fifteenth defended him, but the soldiers of the ninth interposed their entreaties, and when these were disregarded, their menaces. This intelligence had such an effect on Tiberius, close as he was, and most careful to hush up every very serious disaster, that he dispatched his son Drusus, with the leading men of the state, and with two praetorian cohorts, without any definite instructions, to take suitable measures. 
the cohorts were strengthened beyond their usual force with some picked troops. There was, in addition, a considerable part of the Praetorian cavalry, and the flower of the German soldiery, which was then the emperor's guard. With them, too, was the commander of the Praetorians, Aelius Sejanus, who had been associated with his own father, Strabo, had great influence with Tiberius, and was to advise and direct the young prince, and to hold out punishment or reward to the soldiers. When Drusus approached, the legions, as a mark of respect, met him, not as usual, with glad looks, or the glitter of military decorations, but in unsightly squalor, and faces which, though they simulated grief, rather expressed defiance. As soon as he entered the entrenchments, they secured the gates with sentries, and ordered bodies of armed men to be in readiness at certain points of the camp. The rest crowded round the general's tribunal in a dense mass. Drusus stood there, and with the gesture of his hand demanded silence. As often as they turned their eyes back on the throng, they broke into savage exclamations. Then, looking up to Drusus, they trembled. There was a confused hum, a fierce shouting, and a sudden law. Urged by conflicting emotions, they felt panic, and they caused the like. At last, in an interval of the uproar, Drusus read his father's letter, in which it was fully stated that he had a special care for the brave legions, with which he had endured a number of campaigns, that, as soon as his mind was recovered from his grief, he would lay their demands before the senators, that meanwhile he had sent his son to concede unhesitatingly what could be immediately granted, and that the rest must be reserved for the senate, which ought to have a voice in showing either favor or severity. The crowd replied that they had delivered their instructions to Clemens, one of the centurions which he was to convey to Rome. He began to speak of the soldier's discharge after sixteen years, of the rewards of completed service, of the daily pay being a denarius, and of the veterans not being detained under a standard. When Drusus pleaded in answer reference to the Senate and to his father, he was interrupted by a tumultuous shout. Why had he come? Neither to increase the soldiers' pay, nor to alleviate their hardships, in a word, with no power better than their lot? Heaven knew that they were all allowed to scourge and execute, Tiberius used formerly in the name of Augustus to frustrate the wishes of the legions, and to the same tricks are now revived by Drusus. Was it only sons who were to visit them? Certainly it was a new thing for the emperor to refer to the senate, merely what concerned the soldiers' interests. Was then the same senate to be consulted whenever notice was given of an execution or of a battle? Were their rewards to be at the discretion of absolute rulers, their punishment to be without appeal? At last, they deserted the general's tribunal, and to any praetorian soldier or friend of Caesar's who met them, they used those threatening gestures which are the cause of strife and the beginning of a conflict, with special rage against Nius Lentulus, because they thought that he, above all others, by his age and warlike renown, encouraged Drusus, and was the first to scorn such blots on military discipline. Soon after, as he was leaving with Drusus to betake himself in foresight of his danger to the winter camp, they surrounded him, and asked him again and again whither he was going. Was it to the emperor, or to the senate? There also to oppose the interests of the legions. At the same time they menaced him savagely, and flung stones. And now, bleeding from a blow, and feeling destruction certain, he was rescued by the hurry arrival of the throng which had accompanied Drusus. 
that terrible night which threatened an explosion of crime was tranquilized by a mere accident suddenly in a clear sky the moon's radiance seemed to die away this the soldiers in their ignorance of the cause regarded as an omen of their condition comparing the failure of her light to their own efforts and imagining that their attempts would end prosperously should her brightness and splendor be restored to the goddess and so they raised a din with brazen instruments and the combined notes of trumpets and horns with joy or sorrow as she brightened or grew dark when the clouds arose and obstructed their sight it was thought she was buried in the gloom and that proneness to superstition which steals over minds once thoroughly cowed they lamented that this was a portent of never-ending hardship and that heaven frowned on their deeds drusus thinking that he ought to avail himself of this change in their temper and turn what chance it offered to a wise account ordered the tents to be visited clemens the centurion was summoned with all others who for their good qualities were liked by the common soldiers these men made their way among the patrols sentries and guards of the camp gates suggesting hope or holding out threats how long will you besiege the emperor's son was there to be no end of our strifes will pernicius and anvibulenus give pay to the soldiers and land to those who have earned their discharge in a word are they instead of the neros and the drusi to control the empire of the roman people why are we not rather first in our repentance as we were last in the offence demands made in common are granted slowly a separate favor you may deserve and receive at the same moment with minds affected by these words and growing mutually suspicious they divided off the new troops from the old and one legion from another and then by degrees the instinct of obedience returned they quitted the gates and restored to their places the standards which at the beginning of the mutiny they had grouped into one spot at daybreak at daybreak drusus called them to an assembly and though not a practised speaker yet with natural dignity upbraided them for their past and commended their present behaviour he was not he said to be conquered by terror or by threats were he to see them were he to see them inclining to submission and hear the language of entreaty he would write to his father that he might be merciful and receive the legion's petition at their prayer blysus and lucius apronius a roman knight on drusus's staff with justus catonius a first-rank centurion were again sent to tiberius this ensued a conflict of opinion among them some maintaining that it was best to await the envoy's return and meanwhile humour the soldiers others that stronger measures ought to be used insomuch as the rabble knows no mean and inspires fear unless they are afraid though when they have once been overawed they can be safely despised while superstition still swayed them the general should apply terror by removing the leaders of the mutiny drusus's temper was inclined to harsh measures he summoned vibulenus and percenius and ordered them to be put to death the common account is that they were buried in the general's tent although according to some their bodies were flung outside the entrenchments for all to see search was then made for the chief mutineers some as they roamed outside the camp were cut down by the centurions or by the soldiers of the praetorian cohorts some even the companies gave up in proof of their loyalty the men's troubles were increased by an early winter with continuous storms so violent that they could not go beyond their tents or meet together 
or keep their standards in their places, from which they were perpetually torn by hurricane and rain. And there still lingered the dread of the divine wrath. Nor was it without meaning, they thought, that, hostile to an impious host, the stars grew dim and storms burst over them. Their only relief from misery was to quit an ill-omened and polluted camp, and having purged themselves of their guilt, to betake themselves again every one to his winter quarters. First the eighth, then the fifteenth legion returned. The ninth cried again and again that they ought to wait for the letter from Tiberius, but soon finding themselves isolated by the departures of the rest, they voluntarily forestalled their inevitable fate. Drusus, without awaiting the envoy's return, as for the present all was quiet, went back to Rome. About the same time, from the same causes, the legions of Germany rose in mutiny, with a fury proportioned to their greater numbers, in the confident hope that Germanicus Caesar would not be able to endure another supremacy, and offer himself to the legions, whose strength would carry everything before it. There were two armies on the bank of the Rhine. That named the Upper Army had Gaius Silius for general. The lower was under the charge of Aulus Caecina. The supreme direction rested with Germanicus, then busily employed in conducting the assessment of Gaul. The troops under the command of Silius, with minds yet in suspense, watched the issue of mutiny elsewhere. But the soldiers of the lower army fell into a frenzy, which had its beginning in the men of the 21st and 5th legions, and into which the 1st and 20th were also drawn. For they were all quartered in the same summer camp in the territory of the UBE, enjoying ease or having only light duties. Accordingly, on hearing of the death of Augustus, a rabble of city slaves who had been enlisted under a recent levy at Rome, habituated to laxity and impatient of hardship, filled the ignorant minds of the other soldiers with notions that the time had come when the veteran might demand a timely discharge. The young, more liberal pay, all an end of their miseries, and vengeance on the cruelty of the centurions. It was not one alone who spoke thus, as did Percinius among the legions of Pannonia, nor was it in the ears of trembling soldiers, who looked with apprehension to other and mightier armies. But there was sedition in many a face and voice. The Roman world, they said, was in their hand. Their victories aggrandized the state. It was from them that emperors received their titles. Nor did their commander check them. Indeed, the blind rage of so many had robbed him of his resolution. In a sudden frenzy, they rushed with drawn swords on the centurions, the memorable object of the soldiers' resentment, and the first cause of savage fury. They threw them to the earth and beat them sorely, sixty to one, so as to correspond with the number of centurions. Then, tearing them from the ground, mangled and some lifeless, they flung them outside the entrenchments or into the river Rhine. One, Septimius, who fled to the tribunal and was groveling at Caecina's feet, was persistently demanded till he was given up to destruction. Cassius Chirea, who won for himself a memory with posterity for, by the murder of Gaius Caesar, being then a youth of high spirit, cleared a passage with his sword through the armed and opposing throng. Neither tribune nor camp prefect maintained authority any longer. Patrols, sentries, and whatever else the needs of the time required, were distributed by the men themselves. 
to those who could guess the temper of soldiers with some penetration, the strongest symptom of a widespread and intractable commotion was the fact that, instead of being divided or instigated by a few persons, they were unanimous in their fury and equally unanimous in their composure, with so uniform a constancy that one would have thought them to be under command. Meantime, Germanicus, while, as I have related, he was collecting the taxes of Gaul, received news of the death of Augustus. He was married to the granddaughter of Augustus, Agrippina, by whom he had several children, and though he was himself the son of Drusus, brother of Tiberius, and grandson of Augusta, he was troubled by the secret hatred of his uncle and grandmother, the motives for which were the more venomous, because unjust. For the memory of Drusus was held in honor by the Roman people, and they believed that, had he attained empire, he would have restored freedom. Hence, they regarded Germanicus with favor, and with the same hope. He was indeed a young man of unaspiring temper, and of wonderful kindliness, contrasting strongly with the proud and mysterious reserve that marked the conversation and the features of Tiberius. Then there were feminine jealousies, Livia feeling a stepmother's bitterness towards Agrippina, and Agrippina herself, too, being rather excitable. Only her purity and love of her husband gave a right direction to her otherwise imperious disposition. But the nearer Germanicus was to the highest hopes, the more laboriously did he exert himself for Tiberius, and he made the neighboring Sequani and all the Belgic states swear obedience to him. On hearing of the mutiny in the legions, he instantly went to the spot, and met them outside the camp, eyes fixed on the ground, and seemingly repentant. As soon as he entered the entrenchments, confused murmurs became audible. Some men, seizing his hand under pretense of kissing it, thrust his fingers into their mouths, that he might touch their toothless gums. Others showed him their limbs bowed with age. He ordered the throng which stood near him, as it seemed a promiscuous gathering, to separate itself into its military companies. They replied that they would hear better as they were. The standards were then to be advanced, so that at least the cohorts might be distinguished. The soldiers obeyed reluctantly. Then, beginning with a reverent mention of Augustus, he passed on to the victories and triumphs of Tiberius, dwelling with especial praise on his glorious achievements with those legions in Germany. Next, he extolled the unity of Italy, the loyalty of Gaul, the entire absence of turbulence or strife. He was heard in silence, or with but a slight murmur. As soon as he touched on the mutiny, and asked what had become of soldierly obedience, of the glory of ancient discipline, whether they had driven their tribunes and centurions, they were all bared their bodies and taunted him with the scars of their wounds and the marks of the lash. And then, with confused exclamations, they spoke bitterly of the prices of exemptions, of their scanty pay, of the severity of their tasks, with special mention of the entrenchment, the fosse, the conveyance of fodder, building timber, firewood, and whatever else had to be procured from necessity, or as a check on idleness in the camp. The fiercest clamor arose from the veteran soldiers, who, as they counted their thirty campaigns or more, implored him to relieve worn-out men, and not let them die under the same hardships, but to have an end of such harassing service, and repose without beggary. Some even claimed the legacy of the divine Augustus, with words of good omen for Germanicus, and, should he wish for empire, they showed themselves abundantly willing. 
Thereupon, as though he were contracting the pollution of guilt, he leapt impetuously from the tribunal. The men opposed his departure with their weapons, threatening him repeatedly if he would not go back. But Germanicus protested that he would die rather than cast off his loyalty, plucked his sword from his side, raised it aloft, and was plunging it into his breast, when those nearest him seized his hand and held it by force. The remotest and most densely crowded part of the throng, and what almost passes belief, some who came close up to him, urged him to strike the blow, and a soldier by the name Calusidius offered him a drawn sword, saying that it was sharper than his own. Even in their fury, this seemed to them a savage act, and one of evil precedent, and there was a pause during which Caesar's friends hurried him into his tent. There they took counsel on how to heal matters, for news was also brought that the soldiers were preparing the dispatch of envoys who were to draw the upper army into their cause, that the capital of the Ubii was marked out for destruction, and that hands with the stain of plunder on them would soon be daring enough for the pillage of Gaul. The alarm was heightened by the knowledge that the enemy was aware of the Roman mutiny, and would certainly attack if the Rhine bank were undefended. Yet, if the auxiliary troops and allies were to be armed against the retiring legions, civil war was in fact begun. Severity would be dangerous, profuse liberality would be scandalous. Whether all or nothing were conceded to the soldiery, the state was equally in jeopardy. Accordingly, having weighed their plans, one against each other, they decided that a letter should be written in the prince's name, to the effect that full discharge was granted to those who had served in twenty campaigns, and there was a conditional release for those who had served sixteen, and that they were to be retained under a standard with immunity from everything except actually keeping off the enemy, that the legacies which they had asked were to be paid and doubled. The soldiers perceived that this was all invented for the occasion, and instantly pressed their demands. The discharge from service was quickly arranged by the tribunes. Payment was put off till they reached their respective winter quarters. The men of the 5th and 21st legions refused to go till, in the summer camp where they stood, the money was made up out of the purses of Germanicus himself and his friends, and paid in full. The 1st and 20th legions were led back by their officer, Caecina, to the canton of the Ubii, marching in disgrace. Some sums of money which had been extorted from the general, were carried among the eagles and standards. Germanicus went to the upper army, and the 2nd, 13th, and 16th legions, without any delay, accepted from him the oath of allegiance. The 14th hesitated a little, but their money and the discharge were offered even without their demanding it. End of Book 1, Part 2